Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated, and where practical support is available to all Aboriginal women who are currently experiencing family violence or have in the past. The land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello dear listeners, guys, gals and non-binary pals. Welcome to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on life, love and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. My guest this week is an illustrator, best-selling author and queer feminist icon based in London. You may know her from her prolific and popular Instagram account where she shares her unapologetic politics about things like feminism, relationships, queerness and bodies. Or perhaps you know her from being named UK Cosmopolitan's 2019 Influencer of the Year. If you're yet to discover her work, you will almost certainly know her very soon from her forthcoming feminist bible, Women Don't Owe You Pretty. She is Florence Given, or as I like to call her... Florence, no fucks given. <laughs> Thank you for joining me on the Big Sister Hotline. Sorry, I didn't hear that. I was laughing over you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honour to be on your show. It's it's a huge honour to have you. And when I announced that you were going to be the guest this week, um, yeah, people were extremely excited. That's an understatement. I'm just so excited to be here. I've had people message me saying, I'm so excited that you're working with Clem. <laughs> ah, that's so great. You know, it's really interesting because... Um, you're one of the uh, heaps of people sent in questions because the way that the hotline works is it's like an advice kind of Dolly Doctor style. I mean, Dolly Doctor was, uh, you get it, like a, a teenage girl magazine where they, the advice. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, and so heaps of people sent in questions wanting your take on it because you've kind of become this. I mean, you're, when I say you're very young, I don't mean you're very young, but I mean, <laughs> there's, only so, there's only so much time in your life that you can have had to have exploded onto the scene like you have. I mean, you're 21 years old. So in that sense, you've kind of like really gone very stratospheric in a very short period of time. And so many people look to you, like women my age, I'm 39 and women my age have clearly had a dearth of that kind of fire that you bring to the feminist conversation. And, and they look to you for, I guess, like lighting that fire again in our bellies. And one of the things that 
I think when I consider you and the work that you're doing is just that repeated sense of like, fuck, I wish that you were around when I was 21 years old because I was not like you and I was definitely not like me. Sure. Yeah. I am. I mean, thank you so much. That means the world to me. It it makes me so happy. I think you phrased it perfectly. It's reigniting the fire in women. It always exists inside of us, but some, some of us suppress it, right? We suppress that fire. We suppress our desires because we're taught that it's more, um, what's the word? It's more validating to be what the world wants of us, which is to be small, quiet, submissive. And I think it's reminding women that being passive is it's literally letting someone else drive your life around for you and I always want people to question everything that they engage with and um I guess reconnect back to the person that the world has shamed them from becoming and a lot of women don't even know their desires right I am the even when it comes to like having sex and stuff I didn't know what I liked in the bedroom until I made a conscious effort to ask myself what I liked because it had always been centered around the other person's pleasure. And I think from a young age, we internalize the message that we need to sacrifice our desires for somebody else's desires and to honor their desires. And that comes down to everything, including our appearance. And that's something I actually love that you talk about a lot. Um, on Instagram, someone messaged me a few months ago, it was during lockdown and said, you need to follow this person, you need to follow Clem on Instagram. And when I found your stories, I was like, wow, this woman is amazing. I love, I love that you just talk, the way you talk about things is, it's so great. But I think the reason I am drawn to you so much is because you remind me of myself, right? That's why we like other people. And I think that's, when you think about people you're drawn to, it's because you're similar. And I just, I just love the way you talk about um, things and you talk about them with such conviction and just um, like straight to the point. One of the great things about doing this podcast and inviting, uh, you know, it's mostly been women. Uh, we did have a trans man on last week and I, I'm, I'm interested in, there's a very small amount of men who I like in the world. Yeah. But yeah. I'm interested in asking maybe the three of them who exist to be guests at some point. Um, yes. But so mostly, mostly it is a show uh, with women and for women, I would say. Um, although any men who are interested in the way that women think should absolutely consume content that women create. But one of the things that's so great about it is that, you, you know, being able to sit in that space um, with another woman and validate each other is Oh, is a, a reminder that actually everything that you say and that you confirm that the world teaches us and conditions us into, um, particularly starting even before adolescence, to be people mm. pleasers, to be the decoration of the walls that men walk through. I feel like one of the things that's been so valuable for me and that I didn't necessarily have when I was 20, 21 years old because I'd been so conditioned into seeing other women as, as not even enemies because I didn't feel like I was on the same competitive ground as them because they felt so kind of distant from everything that patriarchy demanded of me in terms of beauty and appearance and all of that validation and so on that when I kind of got to the point where I was like oh actually other women can be like a really soft space for me to land in this world as opposed to kind of the hard you know brambles and thickets that we kind of have to bash our way through in order to get to the men yes I am. Um, I was absolutely the same. Actually, when I was in high school, I think for the first couple of years, anyway, it was very, um, 
it's eat or be eaten, right? And I went to an all-girls school, so it was heightened internalized misogyny. And it was all a scrambling for the scraps of power that are afforded to you when you tear other women down to make yourself feel better. And I think for the first two years of my high school experience, it was like that. It was, um, I was in this clique of girls and you would have to um, do stuff and or say things to keep your place in the group, right? And then after that, those first two years that I was in this group, um, I was ousted from the group because they found out that I had an eating disorder. So then I became the person that they bullied. And after that, it was that switch of being in a group mentality to being forced to be on my own. I had two options. I could have groveled back to them, right? Mm. Um, and continued the cycle of emotional abuse, or I could have stayed it out on my own, um, and just carried on I guess it, that was that was like the start of my healing process and I was 14 that that you know people always say oh you're 21 how do you think this way it's because I've 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 self-reflected and thought critically about the world since I was 14 years old mm -hmm. I was kicked out of this group and I decided in that moment for the first time ever that I deserved better and I also tried to empathize with the girls who were bullying me not to the point that it harmed my healing process but to the point where it enabled me to view them as people who were also experiencing pain and deep insecurities that the things they were saying about me had nothing to do with me but everything to do with how they viewed themselves and other women mm. and I think my um, experiences of internalized misogyny um, or rather those experiences of internalized misogyny that I experienced in high school is definitely what kick-started my um, journey into feminism because I started to see these women who, who were saying stuff about me and saying stuff about other people and see that they were just hurting and scrambling for power. And I think it enabled me to navigate those situations um, in the future. And I think um, it's since then I stopped viewing women as my, or rather consciously, I woke up to the fact that I viewed women as competition. And it's just been a case of rewiring that, that thought process from then on, you know, in, in my book, I wrote a chapter on internalized misogyny and I wrote the section on how I tackle it. And I literally will just flip the statements that come into my head about women that are misogynistic. I flip them on their head. So if I think something about, um, the way a woman's dressing or the way a woman behaves, I will flip it on its head and I will almost ask myself, why do you feel this way? And usually the answer is always because she's mirroring back to me qualities I wished I had the confidence to possess at almost every single time. And if not, it's because she's living a life that um, perhaps is a version I once was. And it makes me so uncomfortable to be faced with a past version of myself that I still haven't healed or accepted that I was. And you see, all, any judgment will tell you a plethora of information about yourself if you allow it to. But most of the time, we will just project our bullshit onto women and point the finger at her instead of reflecting. Well, and also instead of pointing the finger at patriarchy, you know, if you're not there yet yeah. on your kind of journey of understanding uh, about how deeply this conditioning goes and how much of an influence patriarchy wields on our lives, given that, you know, patriarchy is the water that we're all swimming in. Mm. So much easier to point to other women because, you know, aside from 
the sort of snide comments that women get about like, uh, oh, well, it's just another cat fight or women, women, typical women just bitching about each other. Women are each other's own worst enemies. I love that one. Like, <laughs> no, that is definitely not true. Um, but you're rewarded for tearing down other women. You really are because the whole sort of purpose of being the official woman in the room is that you signal to all of the men and all of the operatives of patriarchy that you're on their side, that you're not a threat to them, that you'll, you'll do everything necessary to prop up their position and prop up their power. And you won't kind of be one of those women that make things difficult. Mm. Um, And, you know, sometimes people say to me, well, why don't you, anti-feminists say to me, well, you only attack men. Why don't you go after women? And I'm like, well, because I know that the reason that men are anti-feminist is so different to the reason that women are anti-feminist. Women are anti-feminist as a survival mechanism, not because it gets them any kind of power. I mean, it, the, the power that they glean from it is very, it's an illusion. And I also know because I've, I mean, it's taken me a lot longer of time than it has you, but that sort of path to self-reflection and understanding of the world that we're in, that patriarchy functions and succeeds based on um, there's two, two key things that patriarchy requires in order to thrive. And one is that it encourages men to circle the wagons around each other and see each other as a brotherhood, a brotherhood of men who have to always support each other and have each other's backs and put each other first, no matter what. And we see that playing out in rape culture and in the way that men defend, you know, men that they know in their communities and so on. But the other thing, and the flip side of that is that it, re- it needs women to be against each other. Mm. It needs women to see each other as enemies, to see each other as threats and competition to the point where we are afraid of actually showing the world that we do have strong connections with each other because, because we'll be punished for it, you know. Anytime women, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of the TV show Survivor. Um, and I've, I've always feel like that show is a really good example of this because anytime women work together on that show and this kind of extrapolates into the rest of the world, anytime women work together or talk together, immediately the response is, well, they're forming an all-girl alliance. They're forming an all-girl alliance and they're going to vote all of us out. And this is kind of the thing that we've been in, indoctrinated into being afraid of is that if we are seen as women to work together, it means we're against men. And the worst thing that we can be as women is against men. Mm. I love that analogy. I've never, never heard of that perspective before when you brought the two together. Absolutely. There's this, um, yeah, this brotherhood expected between men. And then if we talk about, it's funny, actually, now I think about it, because whenever I hear the word sisterhood, it almost feels um, performative and wrong because of the stereotypes about women not working together. I'm like, I don't believe it. That's my knee-jerk reaction. I don't believe it. But I think the the way um, I operate in my life is to, if I do feel that that, that kind of programming, that there's not enough room, or or I feel um, feelings of jealousy towards other women, I will give the appropriate reaction to my friend or to the woman and um lift her up and deal with those feelings of my ego and of that feeling of rejection and feeling like there's not enough room in my own private time so that she doesn't have to suffer from my insecurity but again i think it's it's so important like you're saying um about um patriarchy relying on women not forming bonds together because it's like we're um, we're doing patriarchy's dirty work for it when we do not formalize us with each other um, 
and it loves it loves to see it patriarchy mm -hmm. loves to see us not forming bonds and um not coming together because then they can create this whole narrative that we don't deserve power anyway because we are catty well the, the ironic thing as well actually is that you know so many social justice movements in the world i mean firstly we're not even this isn't even taking into account the way that racism has informed so much of the way that the world has has operated and you know women of color in particular have been leaders of social justice movements um but the idea that somehow women women just women just don't work well together you know it, it was women who ended conscription <laughs> yeah. i mean <laughs> and I think this is kind of at the heart of it is that is that patriarchy and the system of patriarchy understands that actually what happens when women work together and when women, you know, and part of in, in part, I sort of I relate strongly to what you're saying before about, you know, the kind of impulse you feel when you hear the word sisterhood. And for me, it's that deeply ingrained internalized misogyny that comes from the idea of women working together. It's just a bit math, you know. <laughs> Like a bloody rather than something being strong and yes. community led and for a bigger purpose we associate it with like talking about boys or yeah. something that's like you know like all the girls are getting together or full moon dance circle or something <laughs> yeah i mean it's, but all of that shit still sounds fun and i do it all the time yeah. but, but, but we've but been the, taught the, um, to think that the, the things that we love are like shitty and boring and stupid Mm -hmm. I love that you talk so much about that and how you relate it to um, football games or something. <laughs> Did you say something? I guess it's something and like that. Like, it's like a religion, right? It's like like men are allowed to worship and go to these football games, but when women congregate to talk about whatever the fuck we want to do, right. it's seen as as small and 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 petty without realizing that men are responsible for most of the reasons that we do even associate ourselves with with makeup or shopping or all this stuff that we're taught to be embarrassed about mm. you know it's like, it's like we're told that our worth is attached to our beauty but then shamed when we actually apply it and harness that for our own financial gain i mean just look at how much hate influencers get it's because most of them are women men are shit influencers like i can't name a single good like cis hat white man who is an amazing influencer and captivates his audience and empowers them to do better like women are so good at harnessing our quote-unquote good looks and um whatever we're doing for our own gain but then <laughs> this is this is kind of the great you know this is one of the silver linings of um it's not a silver lining of capitalism but it is a way in which women have learnt to exploit the capitalist system that has exploited them the reason that women are so good at being influencers online and the reason in, in particular a certain kind of very privileged woman is good at being an influencer is because the, the capitalist fucking system created that for her you know they mm -hmm. it has been used to or women have been used to sell things for other people to make money for so long that of course this is the product now and it's just that we happen to, to like operate in an economy yeah. now where smart women and because women are fucking smart smart women mm -hmm. can say you know what i'm going to bypass the person that's taking the money from me and i'm just going to take the money myself that's why we're so good yeah. at it yeah i think it's really interesting what you said about um how privileged women are able to harness it more so someone like myself because i have a lot of quote unquote pretty privilege I always, I wrote in my diary a few months ago, um, I was trying to sum up how I leverage my, um, my desirability privileges to get people to 
activate change. It was something that was given to me that in terms of my whiteness and my being thin, being able-bodied, um, all of this kind of stuff and class privilege, everything that it, that involves, um, I like to frame it as if I'm going to be an, an easier pill to swallow, then I'm going to make you swallow some uncomfortable fucking truths with that. So people, it's like sugaring the pill, right? P people so easily consume me because of my looks or the way I talk or whatever it is, then I'm going to shove some uncomfortable truths down your throat while you do that. Um, because pe people listen to me more. And I think that's, um, I couldn't not talk about things that are important to me and things that I know will inspire change I can't I can't I can't turn it off it's I have I'm very connected to my fire as we said earlier and I think it's about redirecting women back to themselves and back to or, or rather not even back to we never knew what the fuck they were for some people so it's about discovering those desires and cultivating an environment where we are not made to feel shame about them um i hosted a discussion on instagram a few months ago about masturbation in childhood and it completely like blew the door open on so much shame um that thousands of women were feeling we all had the same experiences a, a lot of women were like humping pillows when they were like six years old and thought that they were sexually deviant and it turns out thousands of us did it and it was a it, it, it was wild it was like this huge shame like lifting all of this shame that's that's where i feel like the really important work is with social media is lifting shame and like you said at the beginning it's feeling validated that you are not the only person who is experiencing this because when you do live in a microcosm in your physical lives if the people around you aren't reflecting where you want to go or even where you are you're going to be stagnant and you're going to be having these um the, these qualities or these spaces that you have outgrown around you, you you're not going to be able to grow and evolve and thrive and I think a lot of guilt is attached to women growing and evolving to the point where it's hard to tell friends that you, you can't be friends with them anymore because you feel you feel tethered to them and th there's there's so much guilt around demanding better for yourself and any 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 kind of enormous event in my life which has spurred me on to start a movement or come up with a slogan or write my book has been because I told myself that I deserved better and then I cut someone out of my life and all of a sudden I didn't realize I was in an abusive relationship for years and then that was like wow I need to go to therapy because this is a pattern um and then channeling that into my artwork. And I just think that every single time a woman says to herself, I deserve better than this, a new person is born in that moment. Yeah. And the more that women are connected to that person and that, that kind of asserting themselves, like the world will just be such an amazing place and we will get more shit done. As you know, I am a big proponent of telling women to leave their husbands. Um, yes. <laughs> and I don't mean just like, if you're very, very, if you genuinely are very happy with your husband, fine, you can stay with him. But, but I'm echoing what you're saying that leave situations that, are, that don't serve you, but in situations in which you are constantly being forced into service for other people in this case, particularly yeah. cishet man. Um, and on New Year's Eve this year, or just this 19, uh, 2019 to 2020, 
I wore your t-shirt actually, the, um, oh it's a wonderful day to dump him. And yeah. I wore it on the last day of 2019 and I wrote this whole spiel on Instagram and I was like, this is, this is a great day to put yourself first. This is mm. a great day for you to think about all of the ways in which you've been let down over the years. And because for me, especially, I have a very good uh, relationship with my son's father. Um, but obviously we broke up for, you know, lots of reasons that are shared by people who have children together. Um, and we've been fortunate to be able to develop a really good relationship since then and parent equally and 50-50. But I know that that is so rare actually for a lot of women. I already knew that inequality was real and that it existed, but being smacked in the face with it, like in my own home was pretty fucking profoundly life-changing for me. Yeah. So I know that there are women all over that are feeling like, why, why am I, why can't I, make this person change for me in the ways that I need them to. But as you said, you know, like we're so indoctrinated into this kind of life of service and this life of validation. And one of the primary mm -hmm. ways that women are sort of taught that we are validated is by having a man pick us, you know, pick us to become his wife and live in servant. Feeling um, like the chosen one. Yes. So anyway, so I wore your t-shirt and it had a huge response as I suspected it would. And as people respond so enthusiastically to, to your work, but I've actually, I thought you would like this. I've had so many women write to me since then and say that that was the thing that prompted them to leave unhappy oh, wow. to leave their husband. <laughs> and I really feel what you're saying about this wanting better and demanding better because, you know, particularly when women, if women choose to get married and particularly if they choose to get married to men and have children with them, it's, it's a little bit like, it feels to me like you march, we march little girls up to the top of the hill and we say, here's the world, you can do and be anything you want, but I'm going to take you back to the kitchen and teach you to be happy standing behind the sink. Oh, yeah. You know? it's, it's really heartbreaking that this is kind of, you know, the ways in which we've all been co-opted into our own suffering and part of recognizing patriarchy and party, part of becoming a really unapologetic feminist, I think, is understanding that we are allowed to want more for ourselves and that it doesn't make us selfish. It doesn't, we sh we've got nothing to feel guilty about. And if we need to cut people out of our, out of our lives, then that's just what we need to do. Co-opted into our own suffering. That is fucking fantastic. I think that explains womanhood entirely. <laughs> But do you know what the thing is, Claire, as well, is that we actually feel that there's some kind of, or I can speak for myself anyway, that there's some kind of feeling of pride in being of servitude to everyone in your life. I said recently on a podcast that there is no prize waiting for you at the end of years of self-sacrifice. And that is, that is something I needed to hear when I was in this abusive relationship like babe what the fuck are you doing there's no prize waiting for you the only prize is male validation and male validation is fucking pointless anyway it's fucking pointless and it's a bottomless pit it's never gonna fulfill you stop trying to chase it stop trying to inject it into your veins it's not going to make you feel better about yourself and this oh my goodness it's so it's so embarrassing like the ways i um I catch myself doing it all the time. It's like you slip into this role of um, what what can I do with my behavior that will elicit a positive response from a man or at least make him feel comfortable in his masculinity. And I think as well, it is also this harm reduction. It's a form of harm reduction because you don't know um, 
if he's dangerous, right? Random men on the street, you don't know. So sometimes you have to just smile and go, oh, no, sorry, thank you. When I really just want to go, fuck off, how dare you? It depends on the situation and it's very contextual. I get so many messages from people saying, Florence, how do I respond to catcalling? And I can't tell you because there are days when I will scream in the face of a man, literally, um, if I'm with friends and I'm on a night out and I feel like I'm safe to, to release my anger out on him, I'll, go, I'll just go, fuck off, leave me alone. But then sometimes if I'm walking home on my own and it's late at night, I will just keep my head down and stay quiet and ignore them. It's, mm. you, you have to do what's right for you. And I don't think there's, there's any kind of answer to that. Um, just went on a tangent there. But back to the point about serving men, um, I think I feel uh, there's, there's still this flinching of guilt every time I say no, or every time I say, um, this doesn't work for me. That was never in my vocabulary. I wrote in my book that I'd actually learned how to have boundaries with food and count calories quicker than I learned how to say no to other people, specifically men. That was the most brain like mind-blowing thing I, I said it in a therapy session I was like oh my god I, I remember being taught about calories and how I should say no to reject food and it just taught me that my body exists to be an object of desire for other people but that to be an object of desire to other people I must neglect my own need for nourishment and desire in mm -hmm. the even if it's in the form of enjoying food and that was a big uh turning point for me is realizing that my entire existence as a woman on this planet is so that I must deny myself to honor others. Mm. And there's, you know, oh God, as someone who has also come from, it surprised me actually when you said that this clique of girls teased you for having an eating disorder. And I'm really sorry about that, by the way, but it surprises me because I would have just assumed that they had them too, because it feels to me like mm -hmm. that's a very common experience for um, young girls and, and we're all sort of hiding it from each other, but. Uh, there you, you go. Know, but I was the only one who was outed, right? Oh so yeah, like, exactly. And so, so that's yeah. shameful too, but it's, it all kind of, it's two sides of the same coin, isn't it? You desire, you de deny yourself food and pleasure and nourishment and eating because this proves your worth somehow as a woman. And you deny yourself asking for what you need from relationships because this proves yourself worthy as a girlfriend, because you all, you, oh, we all want to be the cool girl, you know, she's so chill. You, you just, <laughs> she doesn't ask for anything. She doesn't hurt her needs. Anyway, she's just really cool you know she's there's no drama it's just like i just don't want drama um we better get on to the questions because we are oh, amazing. halfway through please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither i nor florence given are doctors counselors or professionally trained sex therapists we're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who have no time for men's bullshit When I look back at my childhood and teenage years, I'm filled with grief and sorrow that patriarchy and misogyny played huge roles in my life, where it was used against me by my family, peers, and teachers at my school, and just society in general. Now as a stronger and wiser feminist, I see that I was being manipulated and controlled easily because I was young and naive and these people knew that. Today, I would never let anyone try to control me with patriarchy, but given that I can't go back in time and save my younger self, how do I deal with the emotion and grief that I feel when I think about my past and how it could have been so much better for me had I known my worth back then? 
sincerely grief-stricken? I think it's all about reclaiming your power and you reclaim your power every single time you say no to things that you once would have tolerated. That's for me, for me personally, every time I say no to things, I feel like I gain a little bar on my, on my life. I feel, I, feel like I, I feel like I gain, yeah, power up. I feel like I gain something that, and, and, and it almost overwhelms me with empowerment and emotion that I feel so proud of myself to be reclaiming back those, those times where I didn't have the courage to say no. And this person said that, you know, they wouldn't let those kind of things happen today. And maybe they are doing this already and they are saying no to lots of things and they already feel that empowerment. Turn it into this kind of whatever um, kind of feeling or loss that you are feeling. You can, this is how I heal. My, my healing process has been making shit that I care about into art, into writing, um, or just having conversations with friends and uplifting and empowering them so that they don't fall to into similar situations obviously with their consent you know we can't give people shitloads of advice without asking them um but i think um it's realizing that you you were equipped with you were a product of your environment and and when you are younger you are just trying to survive you're living in survival mode you woke the fuck up how amazing that you actually woke up to your subjugation by the people around you and you're now living a life that is in line with your desires every time you honor your desires and set boundaries and say no that is an act of claiming back the lost time that you had in the past Mm. i remember when i left um my long-term relationship and uh you know there was lots of things it it wasn't i didn't leave because anyone was being horrible to me or anything like that but i did feel like this is not the life that i want to be living i thought Mm -hmm. to myself you know i was 37 at the time 36 37 36 i was 36 and i thought i i can't wake up it would be so easy to let this just continue but i can't Mm -hmm. wake up at 50 and wonder where all the time went i can't do that that will break me and so i said to myself uh, okay i'm gonna leave and then I remember th- having this kind of mantra where I thought, I'll always wish I'd left sooner, but I'll be glad I didn't leave later. And it was a really good way for me to reframe that re- reclamation, as you say, of my power and my time. And, you know, there's, there's always time to make changes to your life. And maybe you're 70. I mean, I heard the best story the other day about an 89-year-old woman who left her husband. Good on her. Wow. And maybe there's a part of her that feels, you know, a huge amount of grief about the fact that she, uh, you know, we only get one life, et cetera, but she spent her whole life in this situation that clearly was making her unhappy, but then she fucking left. And she, she still had that moment. She was where she said, I'm putting myself first. I'm going to make myself a priority. Maybe you feel the same way Florence as well. When you think back on yourself at 14, you know, making those significant changes in your life. I think back to the young girl that I was And I feel so much affection and kindness and care for her, even though at the time she was desperately unhappy, really unconfident, would would not like nowhere near being able to assert herself in the world. In a way, I'm really glad that she went on the path that she did because it took me to where I am now. And maybe I wouldn't be the same kind of person if I was raised by really progressive parents who, you know, talked to me about um, feminist figureheads at home and, I would be a different kind of excellent, I'm sure, but yeah, you know, I, I maybe maybe if you were raised by those parents, you wouldn't feel the burning desire to mm-hmm. change. You have to be uncomfortable to change. 
Agreed completely. Yes. And that doesn't count just for ourselves. That that counts for the change that we're trying to create in others as well. You know, I always say that if you want to change the surface area of a lake, you can't place a pebble gently at the edge. You have to throw a boulder into the middle of it. And that's that's how you change yourself. And it's also, that's why it's so important to be an unapologetic feminist as well. And to make other people, especially men, especially the men who think of themselves as being really super right on feminist allies, but like, But, lo- but of all people, love, yeah, love to tell other feminists, feminist women, just how super right on they are. Um, yeah, that's why it's so important to make them especially really uncomfortable. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, absolutely. I don't want, a lot of people, it's so funny because my friends who know me know that I am the most loving, compassionate, comfortable presence to be around. And I'm a very good listener. But the people who... Um, but it's, it's a privilege to get to access that version of me. I have to protect all of those qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's interesting, what you said about throwing all the rocks in that, that analogy is that with Instagram, you have 10 seconds less than that to get someone's attention. No one's going to listen to me say softly and gently with a little pebble thrown in the lake love yourself no I'm gonna tell you to fucking dump him because people will take away 10% of what you say anyway you have to go full throttle you have to make people feel uncomfortable else they're not gonna reflect because it's comfy and it's cozy the same with white privilege if we're just saying if we're just talking about racism as though it's out there and we're not talking and interrogating whiteness then it just gives all of us this, this pass card to go, oh, those racists out there. And it's the same with not all men, right? If we say not all men, then it gives the guys who have been to a few fucking protests to sit on their ass and not interrogate how they perpetuate sexism, even if it's just by being friends with guys they know who are dickheads. Yes, 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 absolutely. It gives them the excuse to pat themselves on the shoulder and say, you're a very good guy for turning up. <laughs> I'm and an ally. <laughs> I'm an ally. I'm such a great guy. Um, yeah. yeah uh, I, I could not agree with you more on that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting actually that you say that about, you know, being a, you being a soft, warm person, because I feel the same about me. I think maybe we're just the same person, but separated by. <laughs> totally. Um, <laughs> it's really, I don't know if you get this too. When people meet me, they often say, oh, you're a lot nicer than I thought you'd be, or you're a lot warmer than I thought you'd be. And actually, I feel like I'm a very warm, loving person. Mm-hmm. And it almost to be so resilient in the feminist, in the, as a public feminist, and to be so resilient in terms of like accepting the abuse that comes your way, I sort of feel like you have to be a really soft, warm person because it gives you this mm-hmm. element of understanding of what it is that you're fighting. If you, if you were really hard as nails over everything, you would lack the compassion to keep going. Yep. That's so true. And I think, um, the, the person I am on the internet is absolutely who I am. I'm very tough love with my friends with their consent, if they ask for my advice, but, um, I am also so soft I, I, I always consider that I'm a very open-minded person. That's how, how I'm able to do this work. And I listen to other people's perspectives. But I think people assume that I don't give people second chances. I, 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 don't, I don't let people make mistakes. I don't do this. I don't do that. Because their assumption of a woman who sets boundaries is that she must be this cold-hearted witch. 
um, and, and it's quite the opposite, but I guess it, it's learning to relinquish control over how other people perceive you and staying true to your reality of who you are and who the people in your life know that you are. Mm. So to that uh, little sister who asked that question, I think that the consensus is uh, congratulations for reaching a point in your life where you mm -hmm. feel like you have access to your power and you will continue to keep growing your power. And you can feel grief and sadness for the things that you were subjected to when you were younger, but also recognize that you're part of a long line of powerful witches who have been subjected <laughs> to the same attempts to burn you and the same grief and sadness. And you rose from the ashes, baby. and anxious writes, I'm 26 and I've only had sex twice. Both times were awkward and disappointing. I feel like I have a lot of sexual energy and I'm very comfortable having sex with myself, but I find it hard to make that jump into sex with another person. I'm too embarrassed to talk to my friends about it, so I'm hoping for some big sister advice on how to get myself back out there. Um, I mean, depending on this person's sexuality, it's completely different. Mm. If you're going to think, honestly, because if you're thinking about dating men and having casual sex with men, so I'm bisexual, so I literally dip in and out of the queer world and the heterosexual world, <laughs> like all the time. It's, it's honestly, it's, it's the most wild ride because I, I operate so differently in both of those worlds because with men, there's, I have literally like a ring of fire questions I have to ask men on dating apps. Um, whereas with women, I know almost instantly that she's a raging feminist just by how she talks because it's, uh -huh. it's all we'll talk about. Right. But with men, it's, it's, I have to put them through all of these questions. Like, who did you vote for? Have you read any books by women? Like all of this kind of stuff that I have to check with men, um, before they even get access to a date with me. And I, I, I made a post on Instagram a couple of days ago and a lot of the women in the comments were saying, when you have boundaries and standards and you're socially aware, it's very often that you're just fucking celibate because none of the men match the standards, right? And so true. It, it's, it's so true. And I, that is the strut. You either lower your standards and have a shag or you stay true to your standards and you, you wait out a little bit. And I am, um, but if you're queer, I think there's absolutely more room because, um, or there's more room to have this experience that you're looking for, but also there's less room because there's less queer people and it's hard to find queer people. So it is, um, I guess it's about, I'd say absolutely do not compromise what you're looking for. If you know that you're looking for um, something casual and you don't want it to be a relationship um, or the other way around, it's about not selling and not compromising out of boredom. You make the worst decisions when you're bored. Um, I think in terms of quote unquote, putting yourself out there um, there are dating apps, but there are also, you know, such, such a thing as hanging out in spaces where like-minded people will go. And I know that's so difficult right now because everyone's under fucking lockdown. Um, but maybe there's online communities, you know, even, even following people on Instagram who like the same stuff as you and then sliding into their DMs. I don't know. My, my dating life is, is so wild because I'm single, but, it's so hard for me to go on dates because most young women or most young queer women in East London uh, know my work. 
so it's so it's awkward and then I don't go on dates with them because they know everything about me already mm. so it's I, I my my dating life is very it's very strange so I can't um yeah it's that's a very tricky one it's interesting that you mentioned that actually because someone else had asked whether or not you found it difficult to date yeah. <laughs> in London you know given that given that all the young queer women would, uh, would know who you are. And, you know, yeah, I, f- I think that that is for me, um, I date men and women as well, or well, any, everyone really. Um, yeah. And for me, the, uh, the interactions I've appreciated most in online dating have been when people haven't indicated that they are familiar with my work at all you know they sort of allow like a natural conversation to progress and then maybe later on they'll say look I have to say I I do know your work but I didn't want to lead with that because the ones that make me instantly uncomfortable are the ones who are like particularly when they're like self-fancying left-leaning men like I'm like next no thank you um the thing I would say to horny and anxious is I feel like there is so much of an emphasis placed in our society on um, amassing sexual experience with other people, particularly in a, you know, particularly in a heterosexual, heterosexually dominating society, as you, as you call it being heterified. Um, Yes. (laughs) But in a heterifying society, there is this idea that you need to, to amass, you know, like a, a ton of, penetrative penis and vagina sex in order to somehow be validated as a sexual being. And so if you're 26, I can appreciate that for you, you, you're feeling anxiety about like, Oh my God, I've missed the boat. I haven't had sex enough. Even though you, you actually do have a very satisfying sex life with yourself. And the couple of times you've had sex with other people, you sort of didn't really like it that much, which isn't to say that you don't like sex with other people. But I think that that, you know, that pressure and that anxiety that we place on ourselves kind of sucks all of the opportunity for enjoyment out of those situations a lot of the time. And then if you are dealing in, um, if you are dealing with having sex with cishet men, you know, I'm not saying this is an anti-porn thing. I'm not anti-porn, but I do think we need to acknowledge that mainstream pornography is quite frequently woman hating. And so many, I don't know if you've had this experience Florence or with your friends, but so many women I know have had sex with men from dating apps and just out of the blue in the middle of it, just been slapped or choked or hit or spat on or degraded. And that's fine. If you negotiate those things, if you have a conversation about them and if it's happening in a zone of trust, yes. Yes. And And it signifies this real disconnect that I think a broad problem of this disconnect that people have with sexuality these days where, you know, they're consuming more and more overt sexuality and being further and further disconnected from their own. So for me, one of the things that I would suggest is if you want to sort of get back out there and have actual physical sexual contact with someone else, of course, when we were allowed to see other people again, that it's really important to do what you can initially to build up some level of trust. And that doesn't mean that you have to be in a fucking relationship with them for six months before you sleep with them, but have like really deep conversations with them. As you said, Florence, ask them, you know, a wide ranging amount of questions about what it is that they enjoy to do in their day-to-day lives and what it is like their views of sex. So like for me, when I see men on dating apps say things like I'm really into kink, I always say, what do you mean by that? Because if they can't expand on that or explain it in ways that are satisfactory to me, then I think, oh, you yeah. just want to choke women. I love, absolutely. You just want to choke women. Absolutely. 
I, and without their consent either. Yeah, because that's all part of it. And I personally love talking about sex. It's so hot. If I want to, and I've never had this with a man, but I've had it um, with women and non-binary people, where we'll be on a date and we start talking about sex. And it's almost like the prelude to what you're going to do later. And then you get an idea of, of how this person um, operates mm. in sex, what they like. And then you and then you go do it. And then it's amazing. Um, so I think there's that there's so many ways that you can operate with casual sex, but just communication is the best fucking thing. And it's so hot. People think it kills the mood, but what really kills the mood is fucking sexually assaulting someone and them having to go to therapy for it afterwards. Like exactly. that's the mood. Exactly. What a bone killer. Saying can I take your trousers off does not kill the mood. It amps it the fuck up. <laughs> I always feel like people who say that, oh God, if I have to ask for consent for everything, it just kills the mood. I just think you are so bad at sex and you should not be yeah. having sex. And by the I way, you need to read. <laughs> yeah, you need to read Molly Bloom's fucking monologue from Ulysses. I haven't read anything else <laughs> in Ulysses, only that monologue. But read that. For me, when I think back on the sex that I had in my 20s, it was frequently, I wouldn't say that it was traumatizing, very luckily, and it's fucked that I have to say luckily, but very luckily I never had any experiences that left me feeling, um, left me feeling like I'd been degraded or assaulted in any way. I feel hugely lucky for that, which I hate that that's the case for so many women. I, I did have a lot of sex where it was easier to have it not because... I felt pressured or threatened, but because I just, I didn't want to hurt his feelings by saying no, or mm. I didn't want to be awkward about it. And so this like lack of communication, I never asserted myself in what I wanted. You know, so what you were talking about before Florence, about being the kind of woman who asserted her desires, was very difficult for mm. me to do because I didn't want him to not like me. What does it mean to not want men to not like us? It's like you're being faced with um, men, if, if you value a lot of what you do, and most women do, all of us, it's like programmed into us, right? To value how we're perceived by men. They are the bearer of your validation. And anyone who is the bearer of your validation has dominion and control of your life and how you act. So we've been programmed in this way to not say no and not reject men, to preserve this false illusion of validation that we are worthy if they like us. Uh -huh. But if we're not even giving people a chance to accept our rejection we will continue to foster this culture of quote-unquote blurred lines or uncomfortable sex and again it's not victim blaming at all it's it's acknowledging that women are encouraged to suppress their own desires even if the person who you're fucking could be totally respectful and would absolutely not want to continue going but you think oh god this is awkward oh might as well uh, when if you'd said if you'd said hey do you mind if we do this they might have respected your desires but we're not socialized to even communicate when we're when we're experiencing discomfort if we feel like it might tick him off or it might make him feel rejected how awful is that it's awful but it's it's so central to the conditioning that we are kind of subjected to as women is this idea and it and it it, it is part of everything whether or not it's sex whether or not it's dealing with men on the street and whether or not it's dealing with men who we may choose to fucking live with it's all about that the central part of being a woman is absorbing men's egos absorbing the brunt of men's uh, embarrassment and shame we have to be the fucking receptacles for it whether or not they force it into us or whether or not we just take it on board ourselves and that for me has been like unlearning a lot of that has 
been hugely central to my fem feminist journey. And, yeah. and I, I think what I would like to impart to other women as well is that, you know, there's, it's exactly like you said before, there's no fucking prize for being the one who sacrificed the most. No, no. Yeah. The one, the most, like you want to be the most worn out woman on the planet. <laughs> Well, and this is the other thing as well is the, literally the only thing women are allowed to be proud of is how much they sacrifice. You know? Oh my God. That's why, that's why so many obituaries for women lead with wife and mother. Oh my the most God. important thing that she's yeah, done in her yeah. life. Oh, fuck that. Neighbourly asks, after living in my apartment building and totally loving it for almost a year, I finally met my next door neighbour. He is an older man who seemed nice enough and suggested we get a drink sometime, to which I gave the neighbourly a non-committal, sure, because I like knowing my neighbours. I ran into him in the hallway last week and he wanted to know when we were having a drink and then suddenly was suggesting dinner and how about tomorrow and my red flag alarms inside started going off. I managed to negotiate him down to a happy hour drink after work all socially distant, of course, and also made sure to have an escape plan to kick him out after an hour. He came around for a drink and, as I suspected, was generally sexist and racist and a, and a coronavirus conspiracy theorist and thinks the virus is made up, as well as doing the usual creepy old man line of, how can someone so beautiful like you be single, which, gross. I managed to politely kick him out of my apartment after an hour but was angry with myself for giving him my number after he directly asked a second time. So my question for you is, how can I stop feeling like I should be polite and nice to creepy old men who I owe exactly nothing to? She says that she's blocked his number and cleaned her apartment from the smell of his way too much aftershave. And she says, I felt like I'd been invaded by the smell of patriarchy. And she says she knows she owes this dude none of her time, but wants to stop that voice in her head that telling me, uh, telling her it was rude to ignore him. I think sometimes, sometimes the voice that is telling, telling you, um, sometimes that is the voice of harm reduction. Sometimes you're just trying to get your, if he was, it was he in her apartment, right? Mm. I don't know what the hell I would do. That's such a vulnerable space. And if someone is in your space, you, you know, you, you, if you feel like telling him to get out and how dare he disrespect you is going to make him act out and cause violence, then do not blame yourself for using the tools that you know mm -hmm. can lessen the, the, the harm around you. And especially if you're on your own, I don't think there's, um, it's so tricky, but sometimes it is, it is a form of harm reduction. And, you know, she blocked his number she add out the apartment <laughs> with his shitty deodorant smell. Um, I'm so sorry that you live next door to this person. That that that's I'd not thought about how awful it is to have to try and avoid these people when you can't avoid them. Um, so as women, we know from before we even know that we learned this that we we learn the language of harm reduction. We learn how to placate men's egos, how to like let them down gently. As you said before, like sometimes if you're being catcalled on the street, you, you scream back at them. If you feel like you have the power to be able to do that. And sometimes you just put your head down and keep going. These are, this is all noise that gets yelled in our face, that gets pushed into our space, all microaggressions sometimes and sometimes macroaggressions that are used to threaten us and remind us of what our position and place is in society. The thing is men like that, and he's not, he's not any more dangerous than any other man, really. But men like that know that all they need to do is rely on your sense of obligation to being, to 
being a polite girl who keeps her place that he knows he can get an invitation into your apartment. We've all had run-ins with tens of dozens of that guy. Um, But what I think men especially need to understand is that they're all colluding in this system that makes us rely on harm reduction rather than Mm -hmm. saying no. Because if you're in a room with a guy like Louis CK, for example, and he whips his dick out and starts masturbating, you think one or both of two things. And one is this could become threatening and scary and physically violent if I do anything to try and leave. Or you think, I don't want to embarrass him. Yeah, it's like we're constantly acting in ways to stop men meeting themselves. We have to mirror um, whatever facade they're playing into to avoid them confronting who the fuck they are without our harm reduction and without our compliance to patriarchy, which is why I find it, um, I always say that if you're going to be a feminist, you have to be prepared to be disliked, hated and ostracized by the very group of people you've been taught your entire life you must serve. That's what you have to um, prepare to do if you're going to be outspoken and talk about these things. And that is very uncomfortable for a lot of us to realize that we need to be disliked by men or or, or at least um, by speaking our opinion. Yeah, face the potential of being disliked and um, called an angry feminist bitch by men, which is why I totally own that label now because it's like, you can't, you can't take that away from me. Yes, I'm an angry feminist bitch. Like, yeah. Um, Yeah, I wrote in in my first book that... um, you know, I played the role for so long of even when I became a feminist, even when I kind of had the language of feminism, you know, through my early 20s, I played the role for so long of placating men through that process. You know, well, of course, I know most men are amazing, wonderful men, and they would never do anything to hurt women. No, you're a great guy. You're a great guy. You're a great guy, etc, etc. It just, it just made me feel more and more Uh, disillusioned all the time and more and more depressed and what I realized eventually was that and what I wrote in my book was that nothing for all of the words that men will throw at you it's not even just can all of the words that they will throw at you you're a fat bitch you're an ugly cunt you're just mad because no man wants to fuck you daddy issues etc 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 like nothing hurts more than just being complicit in your own silence about it and it's that it's that um feeling of having to take it and like you said there's nothing more degrading to yourself Mm. than having to absorb those words about you and and just taking them Mm. well even this um you know neighborly feels this way and it's not so much about being abused but she feels that sense of frustration and humiliation (laughs) that she you feel like you allowed the situation to happen. But as Florence said, you didn't allow anything to happen. What happened was a man exploited your position as a woman in patriarchy and his knowledge of your harm reduction practices to insert himself in your home. That's what happened. Yeah. You had, you had, you had your, yeah, your programming used against you and weaponized and forced you into this kind of, the way, the way I describe it is it feels like a muting it's a muting of everything in your body that wants to tell someone to leave you alone. It's a muting of your authentic desires. It's, it feels like a, a muting. Mm. 
And what I would say as well is that what happened to you is no reflection of you, your worth, or the work that you have done in yourself and your boundaries. You were placed, you were forced to go back into a place where you had to be the old version of you, the, the old, um, um, not saying no when you want to speak, you know, if you've done a lot of work on yourself, it can be so humiliating to mute yourself, but mm -hmm. it's not your fault. And you were, like you said, Clem, you were placed in a position where this man was trying to leverage his position um, over you in your confined space. And it's, it's no reflection of you as a person that you were forced to slip into these passive muted roles. For any woman listening to this, in fact, uh, the most important thing that we can all do, because we do live in, you know, the reality is, is that we live in a patriarchy. The most important thing we can all do for ourselves is to operate on a level of harm reduction. And that doesn't mean that we can't also advocate at the same time for the right to be able to live in a world where harm reduction isn't the first and foremost thing we ever think of whenever we, I mean, in your case, not even step outside of our home. Oh um, my God. <laughs> women know how to be fucking safe. The problem is that the safest woman in the world is still at risk of a man fucking killing her because that's men's problem. Yeah. Absolutely. That reminds me of um, racial profiling um, because the editor of Vogue, Edward Ennefall, mm. tried to walk into Condé Nast's building in London yesterday and he was stopped and searched and um, frisked and everything. And they, they racially profiled the editor of Vogue. So it doesn't matter how, how safe you are with a title, mm. with accolades, etc., you will still be racial profiled the same way uh, women can stay in their apartments and take all the quote-unquote safety precautions and still face subjugation from their oppressor. Mm. And it's just a way of blaming us all for, uh, yeah. you know, well, I'm not saying it's your fault, but aren't you sort of partly <laughs> to blame? Yeah, it's patriarchy. It's the way that it kind of wields its power over us. That is all we have time for. Florence given. Florence, no fucks given. You're <laughs> I have greatly enjoyed ranting with you. I wish that I could have a drink with you. Hopefully one day we will get to do that. That would be amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Your book, uh, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, is out in Australia imminently. It's available for pre-order yeah. now. We actually do have a copy of your book, uh, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, to give away to one lucky question asker. So Florence, was there anyone in particular that sort of called out to you? I think question number one, because um, in terms of forgiving yourself for past mistakes and, or not even past mistakes, just operating under patriarchy and all of the stuff that that involves, um, I think this, this is the book that I needed at times where I felt shameful for um, performing under, patri under a patriarchal lens. I think I'd like to give the book to that person. Well, uh, person number one, you are the lucky recipient <laughs> of Florence Given's excellent book, Women Don't Are You Pretty. You can all follow Florence on Instagram. You probably are already. If you're not, please join her almost 500,000 followers there. Uh, she frequently posts um, exactly the kind of things that we've been talking about, you know, the, the boulders in the middle of the lake to change your surface area and change your lives. It's been <laughs> a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. If you do like the show, then please consider rating and reviewing it. And it's really nice to have that feedback. If you enjoy the hotline as well, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges of more than $10 per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode, only available for download to subscribers. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week has been Florence Given, artist, feminist icon, rabble-rouser and best-selling author, whose newest book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, is available now for pre-order. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.